This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Murmured by the choir tonight, hear heaven's open portal, a Pentecostal chorus for us, blurred lines through their eyes distort us. A lot of people have died right here. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Ghost Him by Basic Wagon. This group from Stark and Harrison Counties is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, stoke that fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and researcher, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. A couple of years ago, there was a brilliant piece of investigative work in the Camp Repository by reporters Shane Hoover and Tim Bodis. The pair reviewed the cases of former coroner Dr. Gus Shaheen, who was the final word on death rulings in Stark County in the 60s and 70s. They found some of his rulings suspicious, unsupported, sloppy, and even verifiably wrong. The work of Hoover and Botus inspired Stark County prosecutor John Ferrero last year to form a team of investigators to examine the career of Dr. Shaheen. He, like most coroners in Ohio, was elected to the office of coroner and not a trained forensic pathologist. The team has no specific time frame for its work. Ferrero said last year, even though it might be pretty remote that anything could be done, I think we still need to do this for the victims' families. If we can give them some answers, okay. If not, at least we tried. So it's too early to know what pulling the loose threads of Dr. Shaheen's time as coroner will reveal. But we know now that in at least one case, somebody got away with murder. Hoover and Botus covered it in a series they called The Madam Must Die. It's about a Canton woman's death, ruled to be suicide by Dr. Shaheen in 1974. Then, 16 years later, revealed to have been the work of a mob contract killing. So let's go back to 1974 and meet Carla DeLerba, a 45-year-old woman who was a mobster mall straight out of the movies.
She was born in northern Italy in 1928 and was a baby when she and her mother, Giovanna, set sail for America. They settled in Pittsburgh. By the age of 18, Carla was working in an illegal gambling joint called the Chelsea Club. At 19, she gave birth to a son. At 20, she had her first charge for prostitution and was on her way to acquiring the half-dozen aliases she would accumulate in her lifetime. That first arrest was in Alliance, Ohio, under the name Martha McLean. By 22, she was the mistress of the Chelsea Club's boss, Pittsburgh gangster Frank the Sphinx Valenti. A year after that, she was in Warren, Ohio, and the girlfriend of mobster Tony Del Santer. When both of her former lovers, Valenti and Del Santer, became suspects in a 1950s murder case, Carla was thrust into the spotlight. She was expected to be brought before the grand jury to testify about what she had seen and heard, and the Pittsburgh media was fascinated with her. Her image was published repeatedly below front-page headlines. They called her Black-Haired Bobby, Bobby being her nickname, and described her as the beautiful girl with the turquoise eyes. The case against the two mobsters eventually fell apart, and the public spotlight on Carla faded, but she remained a feature in the underworld. In 1952, Carla ended up in Canton, Ohio, after marrying Pete DeLurba. The couple lived in a downstairs apartment in the 1000 block of 6th Street Northwest, a two-and-a-half-story brick house. They led somewhat separate lives. They both openly had other lovers. Pete ran a Canton bar. Carla spent quite a bit of time away, running a brothel in Wheeling, West Virginia, a hundred miles from her home. She worked for Aggie Toomer, the top madam in the Ohio Valley, and worked to bring in women from Florida and Ohio to fill the rooms of an old house on Water Street along the banks of the Ohio River. Now back in Canton, living upstairs from the Delurbas, was Elva Keith and her daughter Robin. The pair grew very close to Carla. They looked after the Delurbas' dogs when they were gone, did their laundry, cleaned their apartment. The Keiths, though, didn't know everything about Carla. They thought of her as a typical Italian mother who loved to cook and treated them to dinners of spaghetti, marinated meat, and chicken. They thought Carla's travels were for a sales job. They just didn't know what she was selling. That is, until they were in the Delurba's apartment one night and answered the ringing phone. It was a prospective John. Carla then confided in Elva. She began to talk more about her secret life as the Keiths stood in her kitchen drinking coffee while Carla chain-smoked. The revelation didn't hurt their friendship. Carla and the Keith ladies remained close. On August the 25th, 1973, Carla was tending to business in Wheeling when the brothel was raided by undercover officers. Carla and four of her prostitutes were arrested. It wasn't the first time. She'd been arrested many times before. But this time, 
Federal grand juries in Cleveland and Miami indicted her on far more serious charges, including bringing women across state lines to work as prostitutes. Carla tried to reassure her boss, Madam Aggie Toomer, that she'd never say anything to damage her or her businesses. But back home in Canton, Carla was telling her neighbors, the Keiths, that she was done with the life. She wanted out and was ready to turn state's witness to buy her way out. In the spring of 1974, Carla was scheduled for an arraignment in the Cleveland case. A week later, she was dead. On May the 29th, before dawn broke, Carla was found in the bathroom of her apartment on 6th Street Northwest by her husband Pete and her neighbor Elva. Carla was fully dressed, with a gag in her mouth and a nine-inch knife still in her chest. The knife's handle was wrapped in a towel. She was taken to Timken Mercy Hospital and pronounced dead, then driven to the Rossi Funeral Home with instructions not to touch the body until the coroner, Dr. Gus Shaheen, got there. Since the county didn't have its own morgue at that time, this was routine. What wasn't routine was that Shaheen told the funeral homeowner, who often watched him examine bodies, to leave the room. Shaheen was born in Canton. He went to McKinley High, then Mount Union, then to medical school in Cincinnati. He served as an army doctor in World War II and returned to private practice after the war. Then he was elected Stark County's coroner in 1962. By the time of Carla's death in 74, he'd had the post for a dozen years already. Shaheen's report on Carla noted blood in her throat, an abrasion on her neck, and three stab wounds in her chest. But he did not perform an autopsy. And in the one-page report he made, he said nothing about the towel that had been wrapped around the knife or the rag shoved into Carla's mouth. He ruled her cause of death as self-inflicted. Carla had stabbed herself in the chest three times. The announcement raised some eyebrows. Pete DeLerba and Elva Keith told police she hadn't been depressed. She'd gone grocery shopping and attended an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting just hours before her death. But the coroner was the final word in such cases. And he wasn't the only one using the word suicide. A lead detective on the case said as much. And so just like that... It was over. Carla's family buried her, and from an official perspective, her death went unquestioned for the next 16 years. Until 1990, when something quite unexpected happened. The U.S. Attorney's Office was putting together a huge package of criminal charges against Paul Hankish. He was a mob boss in Wheeling, known as No Legs, because he could only walk with prosthetics. He was already sitting in a Pennsylvania prison, but the feds had compiled 218 charges against him and the associates who helped him run his criminal empire along the Ohio River. One of the people authorities found to testify against Tankish was a former hitman named Ronald Asher. 
Authorities found Asher serving time at the Chillicothe Correctional Institute in Ohio. He'd been there since 1975 for a robbery in which he'd murdered a store clerk in Martin's Ferry, a city in Belmont County. Asher had an upcoming parole hearing and figured if he helped the feds, it would work in his favor. Having spent the past 15 years in prison, Asher could only testify to the early days of Hankish's era. But it was an important time because it featured a murder. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Asher had once been a boxer, though not a very good one. He'd only won one of 11 heavyweight fights. He was far more dangerous as a mob enforcer. He started out collecting gambling debts, breaking bones, and setting arson fires for Hankish. And then he was asked to make his first hit. In 1990, after Asher was given immunity for his confession, he laid out the details of his one and only murder for the mob. He said it happened in May of 1974. He and an accomplice, Ronald Briss, drove to Canton to kill a woman on the orders of the Vice Lord Paul Hankish. Asher didn't know much about his target. By 1990, he had already forgotten her name. At the time of the hit, he didn't even know why Hankish wanted her dead. It started as a request from that brothel in Wheeling. As Carla's date with a Cleveland courtroom drew closer, they were not confident she would keep her mouth shut. And so Madame Toomer's daughter, Joyce Sims, asked her boyfriend, Ronald Briss, for help. Briss, who sold stolen goods at his Wheeling hardware store, went to the underworld boss. And Paul Hankish tapped Ronald Asher to work with Briss to end the threat. Asher was promised $10,000. For both Asher and Briss, it would be their first murder. It was about 11 p.m., May 28, 1974, when they arrived at Carla's apartment in Canton. Carla knew him instantly from the brothel. He was, after all, the boyfriend of her boss's daughter. Briss introduced Asher as a friend, and she let them in. They talked for a few minutes and caught up. Carla put on a pot of coffee. Then Asher asked to use the bathroom. Carla led him down the hall to where it was. Now, Briss had offered Asher a gun for the job, but he didn't need a weapon. Trained in martial arts, the former heavyweight boxer figured a 5-foot-4-inch, 140-pound woman was no match for his hands. 
As soon as Carla flipped on the bathroom light switch, Asher struck the back of Carla's neck with a karate blow. She fell to the floor. She's dead, Asher told Briss as he came up behind him in the bathroom. Briss wasn't convinced it could be that easy. He retrieved a knife from the kitchen, nine inches of serrated stainless steel, and handed it to Asher. Asher wrapped the handle in a towel and stabbed Carla three times in the chest. Then they left, locking the apartment door behind them. About 3.15 that morning, Pete DeLerba returned home, but he didn't have his key, and Carla wasn't answering his knocks on the door. Pete banged on the door of the upstairs apartment, and Elva Keith crawled out of bed to let him into his home. She followed him inside. The lights were on. The TV was on. Coffee was still brewing on the stove. But Carla's presence wasn't immediately obvious. Pete and Elva split up, looking for her, and Elva was the first to see Carla's legs on the bathroom floor. A panicked Pete went to his wife and reached for the knife to pull it from her body, but Elva stopped him, saying if she wasn't dead, removing the knife might kill her. Then Elva called the police. There was no doubt in Pete's mind what had happened. He pounded his fist on a table, saying, They killed her. Why did they kill her? The lead detective, Richard Cook, saw the scene, and he thought suicide. He suggested Carla had put the rag in her mouth to stifle her screams as she repeatedly stabbed herself. He did not offer an explanation of why she wrapped the knife handle in a towel. Cook's partner, Tom Carroll, thought it was homicide. He learned she was going to testify against organized crime figures and theorized she had been silenced. But Dr. Shaheen was the final word. Like Pete Delarba, the Keiths knew it wasn't suicide. But in the weeks after Carla's death, Elva received menacing phone calls. She moved from Canton to a mobile home in Magnolia, The phone calls followed her. She decided it was best for her and her daughter not to speak out. Eventually, the word of Dr. Shaheen's suicide ruling trickled down to Wheeling, West Virginia. Asher and Briss were stunned, but relieved. Asher said after that, he never gave that night another thought until the feds showed up at his prison door in 1990. In that 1990 federal trial against Hankish, by the way, Hankish ended up pleading guilty before the verdict was handed down. So the books closed on that case, but a new case was opening in Canton. Asher's testimony had dropped a murder mystery into the lap of the local police. Canton Chief Tom Wyatt soon found out there were others who had questioned Coroner Shaheen's suicide ruling. The police photographer documenting the scene said he felt there had been a struggle in the bathroom and that he felt rushed in and out of the scene. And Detective William Newkirk, who had been with Shaheen when he examined Carla's body in that funeral home, said he'd been told by street informants that it was a hit. In the summer of 1990, 
Stark County authorities exhumed Carla's body from its vault at Calvary Cemetery in Perry Township. They were hoping to determine how she really died. This time, Dr. Michael Choi, a pathologist and chief deputy for then-coroner James Pritchard, was in charge. He had performed 3,000 autopsies in his career, though this was the first on an exhumed body. They opened the casket, and a white cloud of gas came out, smelling like olives, one witness said. Carla was in a pink dress with pearl earrings and pretty well-preserved. Choi's autopsy confirmed the three stab wounds, which had penetrated her liver, stomach, right lung, and heart. He also found something Shaheen had missed. Carla's neck was broken, something that could easily have caused her death and matched the testimony of Ronald Asher. Choi said even without the broken neck, given the location and the depth of the stab wounds, pain from the first stab wound alone would have rendered Carla unable to continue. No one can do it, Choi said. No one can stab themselves that many times. It's not possible. Choi's boss, Coroner Pritchard, changed Carla's death certificate to homicide. And the case was closed. Ronald Asher could not be charged with a crime. He had immunity for testifying against Wheeling's kingpin and went into the Federal Witness Protection Program. His partner in that crime, Ronald Briss, died in a nursing home in December of 1990. So why was Shaheen so quick to rule Carla's death a suicide? That's a mystery. Most of the people involved in this case who might have ventured a guess, the chief of police, the county prosecutor, the original detectives, they're dead. Gerald Wish, one of the few surviving Canton police officers who worked on the follow-up probe of Carla's death in 1990, spoke to the Canton repository for their recent story. Because Shaheen was dead by then, they could never interview him. Wish said, As for our thoughts about why he ruled suicide, to speculate would only be second-guessing, and there is too much of that going on in social media. If you want to know more about the Delerba case or the newspaper's review of Dr. Shaheen's career, it's still all online at the Canton Repository. Tonight's episode just hits the highlights. And that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And now more about our featured Ohio Musical Artist of the Night. We featured a basic wagon just a few weeks ago, but hey, they just came out with a new album, so we thought it would be amazing to be among the first to share it with you. The album is called Grave. If you'll remember, these guys from previous episodes, they specialize in songs that are short. They love the challenge of getting across a message and a mood in about 90 seconds. 
So there are 22 songs on this album, and the one we're sharing tonight is called Ghost Hymn. A basic wagon is made up of Josh Arthurs and Nathan Mitson. They're from Stark and Harrison counties, and they do all the music, the drums, the percussion, the ukulele, the accordion, in addition to, of course, the vocals. You can hear more of their micro songs at their website, abasicwagon.com. And if you hear one you'd like to add to your collection, hey, they're only 69 cents a piece at Amazon. It's a cheap and easy way to show your support of Ohio's great musical talent. Well, let's have another listen to Ghost Hymn by Basic Wagon. Pay attention. The song might be over before you take your next breath. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.